Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. The COVID-19 pandemic is rolling around the world, extinguishing expected futures and opening up the possibilities of different ones. At FuturePod, we have decided to speak to our previous guests and ask them what this moment in time means for them and more importantly, to each of us. If you would like to know more about the guests we speak to, then please check out their earlier interview on the website, futurepod.org. Today, our guest is Peter Bishop. Welcome back to FuturePod, Peter. Yes, Peter, thank you very much for having me again, yeah. So Peter, where are you in the world and what's going on around you? I'm uh, associated with the University of Houston, as you know. I taught there for a very long time, but I uh, moved to California. Uh, I'm in Sacramento, California right now, the, uh, the capital of California, uh, mainly for family reasons. Our daughter is here and has had a new baby, and it's, uh, she's about uh, an hour and a half up the road, but it's a lot better than a four-hour plane flight. So we decided we've been here for about two years. Okay. How's life been with the virus? Well, problem. My our life is fine. We're both retired. I work from home anyway. So other than the fact that getting food is sometimes an issue, uh, we haven't left uh, the house for the last ten days. You know, we basically you are self isolating because we're we're up in years. I, I'm proud to say, and so we're not exact. We're healthy, so we're not exactly a particular target population. But we don't want to take any chances. No good. Okay. So, Peter, what sense are you making of what is happening and what do you think is ending and what do you think is beginning? Well, the what is happening, of course, is what we talk about a lot, and those are discontinuous changes, disruptions. Our going in proposition in the last 50 years, let's say, is that the frequency of disruptions has increased the speed of change has increased, and the depth of disruptions and the, and the significance of them has also increased. Yep. And so we have basically put together, you and I and, and other our colleagues, put together an approach to the future, which is, I believe, radically different from what it has been and what it was in the 20th century, and yet what it truly needs to be. Because as the speed of change increases and as the frequency of disruptions increase, the level of uncertainty about the future gets to the point where you can't ignore it anymore. And so we're the people who leave the uncertainties on the table, not try to pick the right future, not try to pick the accurate future, but basically prepare, prepare for a set of plausible futures, any one of which could happen and others indeed could also. We're now experiencing, as, as one of my colleagues said, what does it feel like to be living in one of the, one of the most common <laughs> catastrophic scenarios we've ever talked about and indeed this is this is exactly exactly what we're what we've been talking about yeah this is an historic moment and you are a student of history and change you know what is this moment do you think what's it going to mean for us well the way i put this is i borrow a term from historians historians don't like the term very much it's called the eras or more technically periodization we have a model of change. We t- teach a model of change, which we actually borrow from biological evolution, which is called punctuated equilibrium. 
Darwin, for us, his brilliance about the, the natural selection and the speciation of, of uh, animals and, and living organisms kind of got the rate wrong. He thought it would was basically evolving slowly and gradually, imperceptibly in every generation. But he didn't have the, the benefit of the fossil records, which we have now. So after World War II, we developed the technology basically to dig up the cores of the oceans. Yeah. And we noticed that there were very different periods, the long periods of relative similarity in the biological world, interrupted by these huge jumps and leaps forward or backward. You know, the latest one, of course, was the asteroid that uh, that was a punctuation. So we're in the middle right now of a punctuation, which means that we're closing an era and we are opening a new era. And so that's exactly the question that that you're asking. What is the era that we're closing and what is the era that we're opening? Now, I have to tell you, as a futurist, I don't have definite answers for that. Mm. Things that look like punctuations, which are, in fact, punctuations, although the old era basically snaps back. I mean, the best example of that for all intents and purposes, at least for the financial system, was the 2007-2008 recession. Largest recession, at least in the United States, since the Great Depression in the 1930s. And yet uh, banks are bigger than they ever were. People are haven't really changed their habits, their financial habits, nor have banks changed their financial habits very much. So that was a disruption that did not create a new era. Y2K was another example of something (laughs) we expected to be highly disruptive. And either we prepared well or it just was never going to be disruptive. It didn't. It was was a day like any other day. So January 1st, 2000 dawned and everybody was looking around and the lights were still on and the water was running and the cars were running. And so we, we realized we had escaped that disruption. Now, those that do open up new eras are clearly uh, the depression itself, uh, world wars. The creation of the internet is a disruption, not, not a catastrophe, but that created a new era in many, many ways. The attacks of 9-11 in New York City, those kinds of things have been disruptive periods. So we're in the middle of one of these disruptive periods. It may close out an era mm-hmm. or it may not. And we may basically leave our homes and go back to school and go back to work and go back to shopping and go back to living in an ordinary life once we get vaccines that uh, that can protect us from this. So there are scenarios out there, some of which this is a new era and others in which it's a historic moment, no doubt, but it doesn't constitute a new era. No. And I'm going to say that you are trying to create this as a new era, era through your work in education, aren't you? Well, yes. I, uh, some people know that I've established an organization called Teach the Future. Our purpose is to bring futures thinking, the kinds that you and I were teaching in graduate schools, to high schools and undergraduate colleges. So that uh, not everybody has become a futurist, not important, but everybody should be able to be thinking about the future in these kind of ways, different than arguing about which future is going to be right and trying to convince others of that. Mm. In fact, just in the last week, my colleagues and I are beginning to develop instructional videos around this time. My very first video is entitled Disruption, and it's to indicate that disruption is a type of change compared to trends, compared to constants, and that uh, this is is an important period in life, and that we believe that every high school student should learn that. 
what's your sense of the of the generational appetite for people to learn this kind of stuff? I think it's high. We get uh, anecdotal reports. In fact, we just put in a proposal to do actual behavioral science measurement of the effect of learning about the future for high school students and college students. I don't know whether the proposal will be accepted. We certainly hope it does. So there's not a lot of uh, data uh, on what difference it makes. But anecdotally, students who do are exposed to futures thinking uh, like it a lot more than their traditional subjects, I'm sorry to say, <laughs> because it's uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's new yeah. and novel, and it's about change and about the future. It's about their future, really, how their world is changing and what it's going to be like when they grow up. So they're interested in that. And it's also a set of skills. It's not just a lot of facts, math facts, history facts, scientific facts. They're actually doing something because I, I point out to teachers that compared to the traditional subjects, we don't have a textbook that, that has the fact. <laughs> and so we are, we are forced, teachers and students both, forced to exercise the skills that we developed in our academic programs. And now we're trying to bring to the general population where they are going to school. So I think students, frankly, it's why students prefer to spend a lot of time and get real sweaty on the football pitch but not in the math class yeah. because they're learning skills yeah. and they're, it's engaging. And in, in that case, obviously, it's to some extent fun. We hope that learning about the future is fun, but at least it's a set of skills where they're engaged, they're involved, it's interactive, they're discovering things, they're learning things, and they're not just sitting listening to somebody tell them the facts that they need. Yeah, and the facts, of course, you know, our textbook is the world and is, and is the emerging world. And so we are trying to skill them in how they make sense of the emerging world. Right. And we're, and we're woefully inadequate. I, I did a, uh, a survey, this is research in my world, uh, of the 10 most popular introductory sociology textbooks. My field is, my original field is sociology. And so I said, how much time do they devote uh, to teach about social change? You'd think that's where we would learn about yeah. in social science, whether it's sociology or anthropology or whatever. And all 10 books had one chapter on social change, <laughs> only one out of 15, and it was always the last chapter. <laughs> As a former educator, <laughs> tell me how many times you ever got to the last chapter. <laughs> either you never did. Never, never. So we, we, don't, we don't cover change. And, and if, you're not, if you don't understand change, how are you supposed to understand the alternatives in the future? So we start with change. And that's why I started this first lesson, not on the future, but on disruption itself. This is a kind of change that students ought to be aware of. So is this disruption out of the textbook or is it obviously every change is different because at the point in time, the world is different? But, but how do you read this, this change process that we're currently going through? Well, it depends on which dimension, you know, how do I read it? It's, it, you said it's significant. This, will, this is an historic moment. There are a lot of people who are highly at risk in this moment. If they're dependent, obviously, those who are targeted by the virus or those who are susceptible to severe effects, both the young and the old, and people who depend on their livelihoods for pay rent and food on the table and, and all of those kinds of things. That, I think, will be the long-lasting effects of this. We might actually see a change in education as teachers are forced to, in this time at least, use technology and use online learning 
which tends to be more independent, which tends to be less lecture-based and more work-based. And students might, and they might find to their surprise that they actually, their students learn more, being more on their own and less, more or less sheltered through a particular established class after class after class of a whole bunch of facts that they didn't need to know. So that could be one of the happy outcomes of this, although we cannot uh, discount the risk and indeed the suffering that, that people are experiencing. As you know, the education system that significantly disrupted by this is a very old industrial model, isn't it? Oh, no, it's even more than that. It's been evil. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just industrial. It does have industrial characteristics. It's even even older than that. So. Yes, we, we have known and we have discussed and we have talked about the future of education for many, many decades. And all that talk is valuable. It's getting us ready for that. But the movement towards that, particularly in the public schools, in the K-12 schools and in the universities, colleges, is minuscule. This may actually, what one thing that a disruption does is that it breaks the frame. It breaks the system. And it allows for, therefore, new ideas to flow in because today you can't just say, well, we're just do it the way we always did. Well, we can't do that. <laughs> we're not doing it. And so this is almost a there's there's a happier outcome to this, despite the suffering. And that is that innovation could actually begin to take hold, not just in education, but in business and in society in general, as we cope with the fact that the old system was not resilient enough to handle this kind of a crisis. So let's, we might end up with, a, I think, even in education, a different, a somewhat different system, measurably different system than one we had last year at this time. Certainly, Riel Miller and even Richard Hames before you have said that, you know, the impact on the workplace, which again is another old idea for the organizations who effectively required their workers to travel to a location that was called the workplace. That's been significantly disrupted or even blown up, you might say. But a lot of people now are going to work out how to actually work in different ways. There was a study done uh, that heard a report on it in, uh, I think it was in Shanghai, China, some years ago, uh, in which a large company randomly assigned uh, half of the workers to work at home and have to stay in the office to see what the effects would be. It took nine, 12 months, something like that. Two things happened. One is that the work at home workers actually increased their productivity by a measurable amount, 10 to 15%. Interestingly, however, that half of those who were at home, given the opportunity to stay at home, chose not to. Ah. I was those are all extroverts. Yeah. <laughs> are saying this is no problem for introverts. We have a problem when we communicate with other people at work. <laughs> we're we're just happy as a clam to be in our own house. So there is a social function to the workplace. But to make it a requirement, I have uh, two sons-in-law and they both had to petition their immediate supervisors to be able to work from home. Uh, one has a very small child and, and obviously didn't want to be going in and out every day. So they both got that permission, but it took a fair amount of doing from what I understand and arguing to say, we should do it this way. We shouldn't have to come to this place. So you're right. To take a concept like workplace, it could be uh, the old idea of one room schoolhouse. 
yep. could be a, a, a dying institution, an institution which changes because then that changes the whole nature of work. And the last great pandemic, which you know, was, was before our time, <laughs> just happened on the end of another great disruption, which of course you know, was World War I. But as a disruption, the Spanish first slash World War I, I mean, that was a significant disruption and also created something like the Roaring Twenties and then ultimately, you know, the first great public stock stock boom followed by stock crash. I mean, we learn a lot about possible futures by looking back to the past, don't we? Yeah, you'd think that after the influenza epidemic that people would have been much more careful. And no, the 20s was a, a time, and particularly in, in Germany, the Weimar Republic and cabaret celebrated in the, in the musical cabaret was a, was a time of raucous uh, activity and very, you know, people were investing with abandon. They were uh, having, you know, is one kind of gigantically long party as we understand it. I have never studied it. No, the world war did change it. it it's completely ended the, the monarchical relationships in, in European society. That was that was the big change. That was a new era, clearly. I don't know that the Spanish influenza created a new era, but it was certainly, it, the death toll was enormous and obviously disrupted many, many people's lives. I don't know what the long-term effects are. To wrap this up, I'm going to ask you to at least, just again, for the listener, if you were to talk through the possible futures as you see it, because as you said, You've talked about one, which is the notion that we snap back. There is a you know tremendous natural tendency when people have disruption to go back as fast as they can to the point before, irrespective of whether that was good or bad. But there are other possibles. I mean, what are you paying attention to? What are you looking for now from what's around us? Well, in terms of, I mean, I think there is, first of all, in the, in the financial world, there's going to be a debt overhang from this sovereign debt, mm. na- national debt, that was truly inconceivable five years ago, maybe even one year ago. How are governments, which tend to be are moving towards more conservative, uh, therefore lower taxes, therefore less regulation kind of governments, uh, how are they going to handle when their interest payments on these debts uh, balloon almost out of control. So we could yeah. see a, a significant financial disruption. Every nobody, at least, and I, of course, I follow the United States more than any other. The any there is no one who is talking about fiscal discipline. No. <laughs> <laughs> that all out the window. Everybody's spending money like a drunken sailor. So in that sense, we are accumulating debts for our younger generation as if they don't have enough problems, that their taxes are going to be an increasing proportion of their taxes is simply going to go to pay interest on these debts. Will we try and recover some of that by running surpluses in government? Well, that seems to be truly utopian, maybe even, or completely implausible. But that's a potential scenario. We may get a population, which since we are democracies at the end of the day, at least, that uh, says, no, we need to pay some of this stuff down. I don't want my grandkids to be paying all this stuff. So there's a financial consequence. Public health, get more respect. Uh, This is something that I talk quite a bit about. I mean, we futurists have a very hard sell. 
we're asking people to prepare for, think about first, and then in, in some cases, prepare for changes which are not guaranteed to occur. Get ready. But to get ready, one has to spend time and money and attention and resources yeah. taken away from the present and, and invested in the future. And that has not become, and along with fiscal uh, austerity, that's not a very popular notion. Uh, these are the people who are telling us to exercise, get lots of sleep, eat right, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. And, and it's, it, it's almost a kind of a nagging thing. I draw the distinction between the fire marshal yeah. and the firefighter. Who gets the credit? Who, get, who gets to be the hero? Not the fire marshal who came and yeah. was literally a pain in the butt. <laughs> Say, you have to move these boxes. You can't have them by the door, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, all right, you know, go, go. We'll, we want to get inspected. We want to get approved. So we go do what they say, not happily, however. But the firefighters, they're the ones who are the heroes rushing into burning buildings. Now, they are doing heroic things. But the people who prevented most buildings in the world from burning down in any given year get almost no credit. And public health people are that. Public health people are about protecting and preventing this kind of thing, whereas the acute physicians, where the money and the, and, and the, and the acclaim is, people who are heroic people who go to great lengths to save people and invent new, you know, new uh, treatments and things like that, the public health group uh, has not gotten that kind of respect. I would be loath to say that was expected, that they would. But maybe there will be a slight movement of the needle to a little bit more uh, attention to what they say and where the risks are and, and how to prepare for them. I mean, right now in the U U.S., we're scrambling for just resources, uh, beds and masks and ventilators and things like that. But in order to put those into stock, you had to say, let's take a million dollars away from current needs and put them in a put that in a closet against a, a pandemic, which we have been talking about for decades as a possibility, but had never yet occurred. And it's a very hard sell to tell people to uh, to do that. It's it really speaks to the whole very very trendy word these days is called resilience. As as the frequency of disruptions has been increasing. Uh, we look to resilience, which is the ability to withstand, to survive, and indeed to bounce back from disruptive events. Okay, resilience is an important thing. But resilience itself yep. uh, takes time and money. You have to be diverse. You can't focus narrowly. You can't be a laser beam of light focusing on a job. You have to be broadly educated. You have to have a broad set of skills. But those broad set of skills don't get you uh, an engineering degree at MIT. <laughs> and so being resilient is a, an advantage when the bad things happen, but it's a cost and an overhead cost yeah. when the bad things don't happen. I think it's an opportunity. We're both educators, and I think this is an opportunity for education to take seriously whether they're preparing students for a world of disruptions and a world in which resilience and the the skills that are necessary are more important than the facts. That's really what, and that that in the education world could be the disruption that shakes people up enough to say we really need to not just talk about change, but actually implement it. And that's my hope.
Thanks, Peter. Thanks for taking some time out. Thanks for your time and uh, do take care with you and your family. Hope everything goes well for you. Great. It's been a pleasure, Peter. Thank you very much for the chance. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.